Hi, I'm Steve Meyer. I direct the Center for Science and Culture at Discovery Institute. I'm a philosopher of science and a geophysicist by training. This is a class about the theory of intelligent design. It will parallel the content of two books I've written on the subject, Darwin's Doubt and Signature in the Cell. In the class, I'll describe the scientific basis for the theory of intelligent design, I'll respond to scientific and philosophical objections to the theory, and I'll explore its possible metaphysical and even religious implications. You may have heard about the idea of intelligent design as the result of some controversy about it in the media. I was part of one of those controversies a little while back. In 2004, I submitted an article to the Proceedings of the Biological Society of Washington. That's the oldest peer-reviewed biology journal in America. It's uh, published out of the Smithsonian's Museum of Natural History. Uh, the editor there, Richard Sternberg, sent the article out for peer review. The article was advocating the theory of intelligent design as the best explanation for the information required to build new animals in a period in the history of life called the Cambrian Explosion. Anyway, the article came back with uh, recommendations to publish contingent upon certain revisions. I made those revisions, and the article was published in August of 2004. It was quiet for about a week, and then after that, the lid blew off of the Smithsonian. Letters poured in, emails questioning the editorial judgment and demanding censure of the editor. Uh, they took away the editor, Richard Sternberg's office, his, his Smithsonian colleagues did. They took away his keys and his access to scientific samples. He was also transferred away from a friendly supervisor and given an office near the museum directors where they could keep an eye on him. Soon there was an emergency meeting of the society that oversaw the publication of the journal. The president of the society told Sternberg not to come to the meeting even though he was the editor of the journal. The president told him that he couldn't guarantee Sternberg's personal safety, that tempers were running so high. Eventually, a senator had to intervene to save his job at the National Institutes of Health, where Sternberg had a joint appointment. Apparently, people from the Smithsonian had pressured the NIH to fire Sternberg. Eventually, he was demoted, and he left the museum when it became apparent that he really couldn't get any science done there anymore. Now, the irony of all this, according to the Wall Street Journal, which covered the story, was that Sternberg wasn't even the heretic. The heretic, they said, was that guy Meyer out there in Seattle, referring to me, the author. Now, in addition to the Wall Street Journal's coverage, the, the, uh, the story was covered in the Washington Post, on NPR, and in most of the science press. It was hugely controversial, and it was one of the first uh, controversies about the theory of intelligent design that made it into the press. Unfortunately, this isn't an isolated case. Uh, I've had other colleagues uh, who have experienced censure or abridgment of their academic freedom because of their advocacy for the theory of intelligent design. Here's a more recent story that illustrates the same point. It's the story of Gunther Beckley, a leading German paleontologist with scores of peer-reviewed publications in paleontology. He's had species named after him because of his discoveries in the fossil record. Anyway, about 2009, uh, Beckley began to read some books about the theory of intelligent design. He did that because he was at the time the spokesman at the Stuttgart Museum of Natural History for their 
200-year anniversary celebration of Charles Darwin's birth. It was a huge Darwin exhibit. Uh, Beckley had put together an interesting display where he had the origin of species on a, on a, uh, a scale of justice on one side, and then books on intelligent design on the other side of the scale of justice. And he piled up several of the better-known books. His point in the, in the exhibition was to show that Darwin's book outweighed them all. Well, he made a mistake, as he explains it, and that is that at the prodding of a colleague, he actually read some of the books on intelligent design and found that they were quite persuasive. Several years later, 2015, he finally announced his own support for the theory of intelligent design. The next year, he was told that he wasn't welcome anymore at the Stuttgart Museum of Natural History. He was taken off research projects and exhibitions that he had helped to, to found or create, and realizing that they couldn't fire him, the museum directors pressured him to leave. Uh, Beckley, like Sternberg, realized he wouldn't be able to get much science done. He ex ended up accepting a moderate, modest severance and left the museum. So my question is this, what is the theory of intelligent design and why is it so controversial? And why does it elicit such determined attempts to suppress it? Well, I'm a proponent of the theory so let me give you a definition of the theory, a definition that most of us who hold to the theory would accept. According to proponents of the theory of intelligent design, intelligent design is the idea that there are certain features of life and the universe that are best explained by an intelligent cause rather than an undirected process, such as natural selection. Now, some in the media and scientists who oppose the theory have defined it quite differently. For example, in 2005, there was a controversial court trial in Dover, Pennsylvania, and many in the national media uh, covered this trial. And according to people in the national media, intelligent design is a faith-based theory, and secondly, a new attempt to smuggle creationism into the public schools. In fact, there was a Time Magazine cover story that described intelligent design as a faith-based idea. Now, I'll show in this class that intelligent design is based on developments in science. The, and therefore, it's not a faith-based theory. It may have faith-affirming implications, but it's based on scientific discoveries. Discoveries like the digital code that's stored in the DNA molecule. Discoveries of the miniature machines and circuits that are, have been found in cells. And the discovery of the fine-tuning of the laws and constants of physics that make life possible. I'll also show that the theory of intelligent design is based on a standard scientific method of reasoning. In, in, including a method that Darwin himself used in The Origin of Species. The other thing I'm going to talk about is that the theory of intelligent design is actually not a new idea at all. It has a, a new and modern manifestation based on these new scientific discoveries, but it's an ancient idea that goes all the way back to the Greeks and to the Roman philosophers. It was also a foundational idea during the scientific revolution in the 16th and 17th century in particular. In fact, the idea of intelligent design, many historians of science will tell us, actually made science possible because the early scientists assumed that the, the universe had been designed by a rational intelligence. And because of that, they believed that nature was intelligible to other rational intelligences such as ourselves. Nature had been designed by an intelligent mind. We should expect to find evidence of law-like regularities and discernible designs in nature and therefore, people like us ought to be able to uh, study nature and learn from it profitably. 
In addition to this, these early founders of modern science thought they, thought they saw evidence of that rationality, of that intelligence in nature. Kepler saw evidence of rationality in the mathematical harmony of the laws governing the solar system. Boyle thought he saw evidence of intelligent design in some of the exquisite mechanisms at work in chemistry and physics. And Newton saw evidence of intelligent design in the match between the optical properties of light and the structure of the eye. A couple years ago, I was asked to testify before a commission called the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. The U.S. Commission was investigating what they called the possibility that there might be viewpoint discrimination in the teaching of biological origins. I was called to testify about the theory of intelligent design, which at that time and still is not taught in American public schools. Now, after explaining what the theory was, one of the commissioners started to ask me what seemed at first to be a series of very aggressive questions. But then he kind of took a little more sympathetic tone and asked me if my theory wasn't actually quite similar to that of the theories of Johannes Kepler and uh, Robert Boyle and Sir Isaac Newton, the early scientists who helped get science going. I told him that it was and that uh, I described a little bit more about why. And then my opposite number at the hearing interjected. And she said, well, it's true, she said, that Newton uh, believed in intelligent design, but he took great pains to keep his ideas about intelligent design, his religious idea of intelligent design, separate from his science. And this is what she said. She said Newton made very, a very clear distinction about how science should work. Newton's view that was that we should understand the natural world solely by using natural processes, she said. And Newton said this for religious reasons, she claimed, because he didn't want God's existence or God's transcendence to be tested by the base methods of science. Now, it turns out that that's just historically false. And I was able to uh, cite some passages from Newton at the, at the hearing, which showed that he built his ideas about intelligent design right into the, the very structure of his scientific work. In fact, in the general scolium to the Principia, which is arguably one of the greatest works of physics ever written, Newton wrote the following. He was talking about the fine-tuning of the positioning of the, of, the, of the planets in the solar system. And this is what he said. He said, though these bodies may indeed continue in their orbits by the mere laws of gravity, yet they could by no means have first derived the regular position of the orbits themselves from those laws. Thus, this most beautiful system of the sun, planets, and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being. Now, in the hearing, I was able to paraphrase a bit of that quote and to make the point that Newton didn't separate his science from his ideas about intelligent design. He made arguments for intelligent design right in his scientific works, in the optics, and then again in the Principia, which was, as I mentioned to the commissioners, one of the greatest works of physics ever written. So what happened then to the idea of intelligent design? Why does it appear that so many scientists today regard it as controversial if it was so central to the foundation of science itself? To answer that question, we'll need to know more about what happened in the 19th century. And we'll need to know more about Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection. And in particular, how he attempted to ex explain away the appearance of design in living systems without invoking an actual designing intelligence. That's what we'll look at next. But for now, I'd like you to read the prologue in Signature in the Cell. We'll see you next time.
What's fact and what's fiction here? Are mutations really the key to our evolution? Think about it. In real life, significant genetic mutations don't create superpowers. They create super challenges. Sometimes those mutations are even life-threatening. That's the reality. And yet we're told that random mutations with guidance from natural selection invented and genetically engineered every feature of every living organism. Changes to life's instructions happen more or less at random. Mutation generates variation. Evolutionary biologists claim that random mutations accumulating over time ultimately produce life's features. If this is the case, zillions of chance mutations over the history of life led to the invention of flight and sight, immune systems and reproductive systems, even conscious beings with the capacity to love, reason, create art, and distinguish right from wrong. However, now, we no longer have to rely on speculative claims. Through experiments, we can actually observe mutations and see what they're doing to guide evolution. Biochemist Michael Behe has spent much of his life researching and studying mutations. Okay. In the past 50 years or so, methods have been developed to track mutations changes in DNA at the, at the very molecular level. Now we can watch evolution in real time. Since 1988, biologist Richard Lenski has been conducting one of the greatest evolutionary experiments ever done. He started a culture of bacteria called E. coli growing in his lab. And since they reproduce so quickly, now they're up past 60,000 generations. And that's like a million and a half years of human lifetimes. So we are talking about numbers that are big enough to see some serious changes, if serious changes could come about. In his work, he's seen a lot of beneficial mutations come along. But turns out that the great majority of the mutations were in pre-existing genes, and they either broke or degraded the genes. So the bacteria were evolving, improving more by devolution than by evolution. It's difficult to understand how breaking a gene can be beneficial or helpful. Think of it this way. This way. Suppose you had a, a car, and the most important thing to your survival right now was the gas mileage. What could you do to improve the gas mileage of your car quickly? One thing you could do is rip out the back seat and throw it away. Back seats are helpful, but if your life depended on you getting better gas mileage right now, that would be a beneficial improvement. The problem with that for Darwin's theory is that ripping the back seat out of a car doesn't tell you how you make a back seat. Darwin's theory needs to show that organisms can improve by building things. And that's what has been missing in this terrific experiment. This famous E. coli experiment shows that trillions of random mutations are not capable of building anything new. By the numbers, this E. coli experiment is giant, but it's dwarfed by the size of a natural experiment involving humans infected with malaria. Every year, about a billion or so people contract malaria. So that's a billion times a trillion cells that are made each year on the planet. In recent decades, scientists have exhaustively studied malaria. They've seen how it evolved resistance to several of the drugs used to treat it. But what is more interesting is what scientists haven't seen. 
There were no new molecular machines, no new genes, and yet it had so many chances, evolutionary theory would have predicted that you'd get something really pretty impressive out of that, but it wasn't seen. And it's not just malaria, it's not just E. coli. The pattern is widespread. For Behe, this raises a serious red flag for evolutionary theory. The discovery that many beneficial mutations are actually destructive or degradatory mutations puts a huge monkey wrench into Darwinian theory. Not only can't Darwin's mechanism of random mutation and natural selection build complex systems, it has a strong tendency to degrade them. This means beneficial mutations, what we have been taught are the building blocks of evolution, show no observable capacity to build or invent. We see that overwhelmingly the good mutations come about by breaking old genes. So you're not making something new, you're throwing out something you already had. We see it in bacteria, we see it in mammals, we see it in birds, we see it everywhere, everywhere that's been looked at so far. This scientific evidence completely conflicts with evolutionary theory, and that is why the public never hears about it. Only a few brave scientists have been willing to speak out, like Lynn Margulis. I was taught over and over that the accumulation of random mutations led to evolutionary change, led to new species. I believed it until I looked for evidence. So if mutations aren't the building blocks of evolution, what can explain the invention of new things like the cell, or the eye, or flight? In birds, we find all kinds of amazing interdependent features that appear orchestrated for flight. We know from experience how difficult it is to get a flying machine and what it takes to build one. We observe things like purpose and function coming from intelligent sources, not from blind material processes. So when we see design, engineering, and artistry throughout nature, shouldn't we be looking for a designer, an engineer, an artist capable of fashioning what we see? We are not materialists. We see the human soul. We experience love. We live with purpose. We fight for justice. We are the quiet majority, and we will be quiet no longer. Welcome to ID the Future, a podcast of Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture. On this episode of ID the Future, we listen in on a few minutes from a recent lecture given by Discovery Institute senior fellow, biologist Michael Denton. We've all heard of the importance of photosynthesis as an oxygen-creating process. In this segment, Denton explains the remarkable set of coincidences which makes the creation of oxygen through photosynthesis possible, from the specific energy of visible light to the unique properties of water. This degree of improbability screams design. 
Anyway, back to Huxley's questions, right? So basically, what I've done in the first part of the talk is I've said that the medieval men believed in the interconnectedness of everything, that man was at home in the universe, okay? And then I've said that for three centuries, science slowly stripped away that idea. And then from the works of Henderson, the discoveries of biochemistry, the discoveries of the properties of the carbon atom, the way carbon is made in the stars, suddenly a reconnection is beginning to emerge, tentatively perhaps at the moment, but it seems to be coming. So there's a great trend now developing back to that medieval conception of microcosmos on macrocosmos, right? And the question of questions, of course, is what's our place in nature? I think that science is now established, and I would say that I've just reviewed a whole lot of work by recent astrobiologists and people studying extraterrestrial life and looking for life in space. And I think everybody agrees that carbon is the unique atom and the universe is uniquely fit for carbon-based life as we see on Earth, right? But what about humans, right? So now I'm going to say something about the fitness of nature for oxidative metabolism for advanced forms of life. Constant activities of beings like ourselves require energy and, the en and great quantities of metabolic energy. And basically, the only atom in the periodic table that's capable of delivering this energy is oxygen. And we get all our energy by the slow combustion of hydrocarbons. It's the same as a fire. And it's not just me that's saying this. What I'm saying is that, in fact, oxygen is the signature of complex life. If you're going to have complex life, needing a lot of energy anywhere in the universe, you're going to have to use oxygen. This is just a recent paper here, just to show you these aren't my ideas, why oxygen is required by complex life and habitable planets. It's universally accepted that, in fact, NASA scientists are looking for oxygen on other planets because oxygen on another planet means that, in fact, there's probably photosynthesis and there may well be complex life. Okay, so oxygen is in fact the chosen atom, like carbon, to give energy to complex forms of life. The oxidation of hydrocarbons is a reaction that powers the world. Mammals and higher life forms obtain their energy from the oxidation of sugars and fats, reduced carbon compounds. Oxygen plus reduced carbon gives us water and carbon dioxide, chemical energy and heat. And it's exactly the same that powers the world of steam <laughs> and the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution, because that was essentially getting energy by burning coal, wood, in oxygen, okay? So it was the same source of energy. Remarkably, as you're sitting there now, you require 250 mils of pure oxygen per minute to provide the energy for the body. I think that's a remarkable thing. A whole cup every minute of pure oxygen you require to maintain the energy levels in the body. So we require a lot of this oxygen to keep us going. Now, one of the things about oxygen is that, in fact, not all organisms need oxygen. And this is why we're starting to focus on higher organisms like ourselves. Many organisms can get by without oxygen. There are many other chemical means of getting energy for living things. And these are just some of the chemical reactions just down here, which might be used instead of using oxygen. So living things can get energy from other chemical sources. And extremophile microbes derive metabolic energy from many different chemical reactions. So when we talk about the fitness of the universe for oxygen and to provide oxygen for organisms like us, we're starting to focus on beings like ourselves. okay? The way that oxygen is manufactured in, on our planet is by photosynthesis. And once again, it's universally accepted that, in fact, anywhere in the universe where you get a lot of oxygen, you're going to have to strip that oxygen, probably from water, in a photochemical process, something like photosynthesis, okay? Photosynthesis is carbon dioxide plus water plus solar energy produced hydrocarbons. So we get oxygen by the process of photosynthesis. And what energy does the 
photosynthesis need. It's a very small region of the electromagnetic spectrum, which is the visual region. This is the region which powers photosynthesis, okay? So if you look at the fitness of radiant energy, that's the electromagnetic spectrum, this is the part of the electromagnetic spectrum that has the right energy levels for photosynthesis. In fact, it's light. Light energy has the correct characteristics to raise the atoms of organic chemistry to levels for chemical interactions. So light is the right electromagnetic energy for photosynthesis, okay? Well, when you look at the sun, you find the sun turns out nearly all of its energy in the visible spectrum. <laughs> so the sun is pouring out just the energy you need for photosynthesis, okay? And so the radiant energy output of the sun happens to be in exactly the same region of the electromagnetic spectrum that you need for photosynthesis. <laughs> Convenient coincidence. So you can put down these two little diagrams. Here is the part of the electromagnetic spectrum, which happens to be light, the visual region, which is appropriate for photochemistry for photosynthesis, and this is the radiant output of the sun. And of course, they coincide, okay? So the cosmos is not only seeded with the atoms of life, it's bathed in the light you need for photosynthesis, which produces oxygen for higher organisms like ourselves. okay? Well, if you're going to get the light of the sun to the planetary surface, it has to come through the atmosphere. And our atmosphere, which is the atmosphere of a carbon-based life-bearing planet, contains nitrogen, oxygen, carbon dioxide, and water vapor. And whenever you get carbon-based life, you're going to have to have oxygen, carbon dioxide, and water vapor in the atmosphere of the planet, okay? And so these are gases which absorb incoming electromagnetic radiation. And guess what? Incredibly, and this is a really incredible thing, the atmosphere, oxygen, water vapor, carbon dioxide, what you have, it lets through the light of the sun and the part of the electromagnetic spectrum, the visual region, which is just what you need for photosynthesis, right down to the surface of the planet. And all the other gamma radiation, UV, dangerous microwaves are absorbed by the atmosphere. What are these atmospheric gases? Water vapor, CO2, oxygen, the very key gases that you're going to have in a carbon-based biosphere. So the light pours out the light of life and it goes right through the atmosphere to the surface of the planet, right? And the UV and many of the harmful radiations are absorbed by the gases, but the crucial light for photosynthesis to make oxygen goes right through to the surface of the planet. So this is what we have now. We have the radiant energy output of the sun. The light you need for photosynthesis is able to go right down to the planetary surface. If that wasn't the case, there'd be no complex life on the cosmos. Right? If the gases needed for a carbon biosphere absorbed visual light, no oxygen, no complex life. Okay? So these are some of the coincidences of nature. Even more remarkable is the fact that water as well lets down light in especially blue light, to 500 meters. So it carries the life-giving light for photosynthesis right into the ocean surface waters so that the plankton of the seas can generate oxygen. So what we have here is a very remarkable set of coincidences. Main sequence stars and our sun pour out exactly the light and energy you need for photosynthesis. The atmosphere allows it to get to the surface of the planet and water allows it to sink into the water so photosynthesis can occur in the water. And if you think you should be awed by this, because the author of the Encyclopedia Britannica describing these coincidences admits to being awed and it's easy to sympathize. Okay? So there's a definite set 
of arrangements in nature to get oxygen made on planetary surfaces. And wh why do we need oxygen for guys like you? Because every single minute you're sitting in this room, you're taking up 250 mils of oxygen as you're sitting there. If you go for a run, like Usain Bolt, you'd be using up about five liters a minute, right? So we need oxygen as complex organisms Highly metabolic, active organisms need oxygen, okay? And the universe gives definite, definite evidence that it's organized now, not just for carbon-based life, not fit for just carbon-based life, but now it's fit to make oxygen for organisms like us. And the coincidences are awesome. That's not my word, that's the mainstream conception of this, that it's an awesome set of coincidences, right? So we can make oxygen on the planetary surface, right? But oxygen's a very, very dangerous element, actually. The oxygen content of the atmosphere we need to get 250 mils of oxygen every minute, you need about 20 to 25% of oxygen in the atmosphere, right? If you go up to the top of Mount Everest, you can hardly breathe, right? So you've got to have a considerable amount of oxygen in the atmosphere for us to function as oxygen utilizing organisms, right? You can only get that 250 mils a minute if there's a lot of oxygen in the atmosphere. So let's just think about this for a minute. The trouble is that oxygen is a very, very dangerous element. This is Melbourne City a few years ago when they had the, the dangerous bushfires, right? Oxygen is an extremely dangerous element. This is the fire front there advancing towards Melbourne. I'm just showing this to tell you that oxygen is a very, very dangerous element, right? How much can you have to be safe? We have, in fact, 20%. But you can't go much higher than that or you have spontaneous combustion. 30 and 40% is very, very dangerous. But guess what? Again, everything seems to be nicely arranged. You can go to 20% with oxygen and you don't have spontaneous combustion all over the world, right? And you need about 20% oxygen in the atmosphere to get that 250 mils breathing in from the atmosphere. So the coincidences are building, right? And they're pointing towards us now. Not extremophiles, not organisms that don't use oxygen, not organisms that might live on... The, in Triton or in the sands of Mars, right? This is organisms that need a lot of oxygen, right? This is a famous quote from Arthur C. Clarke. He couldn't understand why we don't have spontaneous combustion, actually. <laughs> oxygen is such an active atom. I simply don't want to know. <laughs> now, why can we have 20% oxygen in the atmosphere? This is this extraordinarily vigorous, dangerous element, right? And the reason is another coincidence. There's a curious aspect to dioxygen. It tends to be not very active until you get to about 50 degrees. And the reason for this is that, in fact, and this is from an expert on this area, dioxygen, the form of oxygen ambient temperature, is relatively unreactive. This is because an energy barrier which must be overcome to convert the dioxygen to a variety of several high-energy species of oxygen in which all the electron spins are paired is much more reactive towards common organic molecules. In other words, there is a certain inertness, a special inertness in dioxygen, which is in the atmosphere, which makes it relatively inactive, below temperatures of about 50 degrees, right? And if it wasn't for this relative inertness of O2, we couldn't have 20% oxygen in the atmosphere. Its activity has been attenuated, you see, very specially, in a unique way. Another coincidence is this, oxygen is not a greenhouse gas. And that's a very good job, isn't it? Because basically, as oxygen levels increased over the last thousand million years from nothing to the current levels of about 20%, if it had been a greenhouse gas, forget it, we wouldn't be sitting here. 
In fact, oxygen absorbs no incoming radiant heat because it's a diatomic molecule. You need triatomic molecules to be greenhouse gases. So let's be very thankful that there's another coincidence here that dioxygen is not triatomic, it's diatomic. It doesn't absorb any heat. So this huge change in oxygen levels in the history of the Earth can occur without any effect on the heat balance of the Earth, right? So another one of the coincidences in the properties of oxygen which allow us to be sitting in this room now breathing this life-giving gas. Now, a very interesting thing about this on the side is that oxygen has a triatomic form called ozone. And ozone is a greenhouse gas which observes thousands of times more heat than CO2. But it's very unstable, and it exists mainly in the upper atmosphere, where it turns over very quickly. It's a tiny fraction of the amount of oxygen. It does something very interesting, though, ozone. It absorbs ultraviolet light. <laughs> and when do you need to absorb ultraviolet light? When you have green plants on the surface available to the sun. <laughs> so the oxygen, which gives life, also gives life in another sense, because it gives us ozone which happens to be a greenhouse gas, but can do its job in tiny, 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 tiny quantities in the upper atmosphere. That's absolutely beautiful. The oxygen story is one coincidence after another, facilitating life like you sitting here in this room, okay? It's, um, so we're, we're going back, we're, we're now increasingly at home in the universe. The universe is looking increasingly like a vast unity with life like us as one of its central purposes and meanings, okay? You've been listening to an excerpt from a recent lecture by biologist and Discovery Institute senior fellow Michael Denton. For more information about intelligent design, be sure to visit intelligentdesign.org. And for daily news reporting on the debate over evolution, check into evolutionnews.org. ID the Future is copyright 2012 Discovery Institute.